Good morning. morning. Here to worship our God through uh, through the Word of God. There was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He was uh, one who had to uh, go through the Hitler regime, and uh, he actually did not waver in his, because you could see his Christian uh, antagonism to that Nazi regime. He stood against it, as few people did in Germany at that time. They all gave in. He was uh, imprisoned. Not only was he imprisoned, but he was threatened with torture constantly. His family was threatened, and then finally death itself. He was executed by Heinrich Himmler in April of 1945. And in just a few days after that, that concentration camp was liberated just after his death. Uh, It was really kind of like the fulfillment of what he had always believed and taught. I'm going to read just a little paragraph here of what he talked about in persecution and suffering. He said, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means pasio, passiva, suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it's therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. So goes the thoughts of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he follows the thoughts of 2,000 years of the church and long before that. It's that God's people are persecuted because they follow Christ. And that is really right around the same area that we are going to be dealing with today with one of the seven churches called Smyrna. It's a persecuted church. The book of Revelation is where we're at. We happen to be in the second chapter dealing with the second church. We dealt with Ephesus last week. They were commended highly by God. A great high doctrinal church. Quite the believers they were. Only one thing that God had against them is that they lost their first love. We never want to lose our first love. That is loving Christ Himself and loving His people. True love. Love comes from God. We can believe all the right things, but if we don't have the love for Christ, love God, love your neighbor, then it means nothing. And that's what had happened by the time it reached the second generation there in Ephesus. Now we're going to look at this church of Smyrna And they really had zeal for the Lord. They were a church very concerned for His honor. They were willing to give up their lives. They did. And they were willing to suffer for Christ. May this be a lesson for us also. This was a magnificent church. A magnificent, beautiful city. Beautiful seaport city where this church was located about 36 miles from Ephesus, north of there. And it was a heavily persecuted gathering because of their belief. That's our theme today. 
There are other churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3. That is what the present tense is in our outline through Revelation. The first point is past. And that's in chapter 1. That's the vision of Christ. Chapter 2 is what is. What is now. That's the present and that's the churches. The message that's given to them. As John writes this, from chapter 4 on then, it's future tense. What will happen in the future. A lot of churches were very comfortable. They were compromising churches and they were not persecuted at that time. Some of them will not be commended. One of them will not be commended in the sense the way that the others are, but will be given a condemnation all throughout its letter. That's not the case in Smyrna. Smyrna is commended and never gives is given a condemnation message. There's one other church that is like that, and it's Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia, and we'll be looking at that. Um, if I was following with what Alistair Begg did, he took two of those together and uh, put them in one message. I don't know how he did that. I listened to it this morning on, on before I came here, and I don't know how he did it because I had to leave. It was about halfway through. <laughs> so, And he hadn't gotten to the Philadelphia church yet, so I don't know. Anyway, he was, he was going to try that. But those are two churches that stood apart from the other churches. Revelation has an outline, as we say, and now we are at, at present now. We're looking at what, is, uh, what John is concerned with. So let's pick up our Bibles that we truly believe in. Let's let God speak to us in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as we peer into Your precious Word here that's given to this particular church of Smyrna, We pray that we too can take this message and make it apply to us as we look at how it applied to them. What comfort you are being the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life. And in your name we pray, Amen. As you know, we uh, have already said each outline for each of these seven churches are almost identical. There's one missing in this one today. Like I said earlier, that is the condemnation. He has no condemnation for this church. But basically, it starts off like this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, 
if you were to look in verse 12, another church, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum. You go on and on, it's the same thing. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira. That's the way it starts. The first part is an address to the angel of the church. We uh, looked at that last week. Each message is going to go to the, the seven messengers. And the word messenger is translated from the word angelos, which is the Greek word for what's placed here as angel of the church, angelos, or messenger of the church. It could be in the literal sense, when you, when you hear the word angel, what do you think of? You think of those supernatural beings. Uh, and very well could be. I don't dismiss that at all. Or it could be to uh, a messenger that brought these letters to each of the churches. Each one had the message here that was written down by John. <clears throat> and those even could be some of the elders, pastors of each of the churches there that would be given that. So it seems like it's familiar with what we did last week. We move on. And this one, it says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. What we're going to do is take a little bit of time and look at the city of Smyrna. And you'll see some pictures there uh, throughout the outline that I have. And um, you will see on the top picture, those are ruins of ancient city Smyrna. Down below is uh, another city, which is really the same city with a different name, and it, but it's really in the same area where this church is at, Smyrna. Um, so if we get this insight, I think it will help us as we go through this letter here. It's definitely has uh, historical significance. A lot of facts here that help support what our text is dealing with. And as I say, this the city city still exists. That means there wasn't a common a condemnation to this city. They still exist. There's a church there today. It's a Muslim city, but there's a church there. There are believers there. You see, God didn't take the candlestick away from Smyrna, but one of the greatest churches, Ephesus had its candlestick removed. And we saw last week that there is no modern Ephesus. It was destroyed. And so was the church. There's no candlestick there today. Here there is. Interesting, isn't it? God's promises are true. They were a city that, as they were 35 miles away from Ephesus, very close to them, probably knew each other in some senses. They were known and there are there are seven cities here that like to claim the beauty of their city. Every city does that, but they were known as the ornament of Asia. We'd know as Asia Minor, the, the ornament. They were a beautiful city, uh, quite a setting that it was. And you can see in that modern day picture, you know, there you have the the ocean right there. Uh, it was a seaport, and it, it was an inland area. So it's a quite quite incredible place and it certainly is a representative of our society today we live in a beautiful country don't we this country has been blessed with so many natural resources and the beauties the water and oceans and the mountains and the valleys just meadows i mean it's incredible and the cities many of them were beautiful until they got tore apart this summer some of them anyway Anyway, 
you know, in reality, that outwardness really doesn't matter a lot. As beautiful as it is, and with all the natural wonders that are here, we live in a world that speaks against Christ, that hates Christ, hates anything to do with Him, whatever it might say. Smyrna had its ideals. It was considered idyllic. had its philosophies. But there was something inherently wrong about that city. It was satanic, as much of the world today is. has a beautiful harbor. Ships come. has its foothills. Back behind the city is a great Argos, a big hill. The hill was covered with temples and buildings all over the place. It wasn't temple to the one true God. They were temples of false gods there in Smyrna. But because of those temples and that hill that was above the city, it was called the, the crown of Smyrna. It's like it had its crown. It's being like a kingly city. It was a very important city. It's a trade city. Commercialism was dominant there because they traded all throughout even the valley there and through uh, ship trading. Politically, it was a free city. Even though it's under the Roman Empire, it's had its freedom and it had important legal cases brought there. So, certain matters that were of the highest significance would be brought to Smyrna. A major city, a great city. Religiously, it was the center of the worship of Caesar. They uh, carried on this kind of worship. See, the Romans had a difficult problem as a political empire that really covered the world, their empire did. They had people with their empire of different cultures, of different gods, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of languages, all sorts of different places that's in the Roman Empire. And they looked for ways. The Roman Empire said, we need to unify this Roman Empire. So they wanted to have the citizens in unity. And one of the ways they hit upon this was worship to Caesar. That was Caesar worship, where he was even considered a god. And it didn't really mean too much to the Romans. Really, they just wanted uh, a way to unify the people. It wasn't a big deal. And all those cities and nations could have their own gods. But most important of all was the Caesar. And so they would make sure that everybody would worship him. You can see how politics and religion can work together as long as it's not involving Jesus Christ, you see. That's the way it's always been. And the revival of the Roman Empire, as we know that will soon come and is already kind of here, that's always been a significance. The Roman Empire, you had the king and you had the pope. They were in conjunction together and they were called a state that was really Roman all the way through. Now, if you worship Caesar, you would be considered part of that city and of the nation of the, uh, the empire. You would burn incense. You would burn it to Caesar 
and say, Caesar is Lord. Once a year, they would do that. It's kind of like giving a certificate, a check mark, you're okay. You are a citizen here. Okay, you're a Christian. And they tell you to do such a thing, to burn incense and say Caesar is Lord. And if you're a Christian, to denounce Jesus Christ. Well, that's okay if you just do that. You don't really mean it, right? Not to the people in Smyrna. See, this. that's why this letter is very, very significant that John writes to them. Uh, the city has a name that's significant. It's an industrious city. You know what one of its industries was? Well, the name of the city is Smyrna. Smyr. Did you catch that? Myr. That's one of their trades. And it operated this trade. It was uh, aromatic resin. It was a resonance gum that came out of a tree and it was used for embalming. And so they were noted for that. They have these kind of trees all around. If you look in the New Testament in Matthew 2.11, you see the birth of Christ and wise men come to celebrate this child who is going to be the Messiah. You know, the kings come with what? Gold, frankincense, and I'll give you one guess. <laughs> We've all heard of that. What does that mean? He's being born. Well, it's, of course, you think of gold, frankincense, but myrrh is meaning suffering. It was like a prophecy in that sense as they bring this because we know that on the cross in Mark chapter 15, He is offered wine, Jesus is, that is mingled with myrrh. And then, one of the spices that's used to wrap Him up would have been what? It would have been the myrrh. Kind of fascinating. So at the death and the burial, we have myrrh being used for Christ, this Messiah. Quite significant, isn't it? And the city, Smyrna, is in that way. By the way, uh, in the Old Testament, when you see wine, it's like, and considering Christ's death on the cross, wine is considered to be, in the Old Testament, the blood of grapes. The grapes bleed. They represent the shedding of the blood of Christ, the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation that covers our sin. So, And that had to be suffering. And so, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, we get some good news in the Old Testament, despite all the judgment. Look in Isaiah chapter 60, where you will see Gold and frankincense mentioned. Isaiah 60, verse 6. I like this. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. 
All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. What's missing? Myrrh. Why? Well, this particular passage is dealing when the King of Kings has come back. There won't be any need of myrrh for Him because He did that at the cross. It meant death. It meant suffering. It means now in Isaiah 60, which is 700 years before Christ, in a prophecy that is to come even in our future, gold and frankincense for the king. Did you like that? They're bearing good news of the praises of the Lord. That's what the kingdom is all about. So, when you think of that, gives chills down your back. The reigning king is suffering is over. So that is one thing about the city. It's interesting, that city actually died. It was conquered. And that was somewhere around 500 and something B.C. That city came back to life in 200 and some odd B.C. before Christ and became the beautiful city that it was whenever it was written here by John in the first century at the end of the first century. Another thing about it is idolatry. The idolatry just screams there. Along with Caesar as Lord, they had their own gods. They had their own temples. It offered worship to the emperor and to all the gods that they had. And there was a large Jewish population there get that. They still worshipped the God of the Old Testament, but they were wrong in their worship. And we'll see what they're called there. So, they have a satanic undertone. They're industrious in their production of the aromatic resin, myrrh. They're idolatrous in the emperor cult. So we can see where they stand and I think what it is is a picture of our world today. Not to just symbolize it, but this is America here. This is a message to the church who today is being persecuted in small senses like it has it before here in this country. And it could get worse. But never fear. As God says in His Word here. And I think this is a great, great encouragement to us that sit here today and to the rest of the body of Christ. So that's why I say when we turn now to Revelation chapter 2, we did already start in verse 8, didn't we? So we go to the second one. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, we just covered Smyrna. Does that help? It should help. That's where they're living. They're real people. They're like us. The characteristic of Christ. We've got to have a picture of Christ before us constantly. In chapter 1, that's what we get. The beautiful picture that is drawn by John, by the Holy Spirit's words, to 
Give us the best picture that we have of Christ in all of His glory and all of His grace and all of His judgment there. And each church gets a little bit of that description. Here it is right here, and we've already seen this in in chapter 1. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Who is that? He was dead. He's the first and the last. He was dead. He came to life. People tell a story, doesn't it? Well, this is the second point now. First and last is dealing with the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. He is the beginning. He's the end. He is the eternal one. That's the idea. He's always been here, always will be. He's right here, right now. The first and the last. What kind of meaning would that have to people who are not favored in Smyrna, who belong to a church there? Well, it would have quite the significance, wouldn't it? It would mean a lot. He is God of God. They have all sorts of gods there, temples and everything, and they have Caesar. But yet, He is God. The one who became flesh, the first and the last, who was dead. So he came in the flesh, took on a body like ours, and he was crucified. And so therefore it gets into the part that he did become dead. He is eternal as God. He is the eternal Son. He is the uncreated one. He died as a sacrifice for our sin. He took our place. God was propitiated. He was satisfied in what His Son did in becoming dead because He took all of our sin to the point of death. And our sacrifice for sins is done forever. So God says here in verse 8, He became dead. Literally, He is the one who became dead and who lives. None other than Jesus Christ. He's the first and the last. The whole triune God is the first and the last. But the one here specifically is Christ who's speaking and giving the message to this messenger. He's living right now, isn't He? He rose again. This is all a part of the the Gospel right here, just in one little half sentence or sentence. Smyrna's suffering gets spoken to here. He's in the midst of their suffering. He's right there with them. He knows what it's like. So the one who suffered, who died, who entered death, but was victorious over it all, He's the first and the last. So, He wants through the Holy Spirit for the people to see that Smyrna, the Smyrna church, is the eternal God. Look in Revelation 1.17. When I saw Him, John fell at His feet like a dead man. I was like dead. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. What do you associate with that? I am the first and the last. 
And that's exactly what he's telling Smyrna when he addresses him here. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but I'm alive. And he'll say it again. Do not be afraid. Look in Isaiah 41.4. Isaiah 40 chapters, folks, you have condemnation on all the nations, even Israel. And at chapter 40, the sun bursts out, gives us good news. Chapters 40 through 66. That's a general outline of Isaiah. Not fully correct, but that's a basic way of showing what it is. In Isaiah 41, bringing good news, in verse 4 it says, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, I Yahweh, and the first, and with the last, I am He. First, the last, I am He. This is God. Who is this? This is God. So if somebody says they're the first and the last, who are they? They're God. But also in this case, who is this? This is Christ. Go to Isaiah 44, verse 6. We're still on that section in the 40s of Isaiah where he says he's the first and the last, as he keeps saying in Revelation. 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. How many other gods are there? None. There's the triune God, one God, three persons. Here it's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's also Jesus Christ here who is the Son. In chapter 48, verse 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first, I am also the last. I'm eternal. After 39 chapters, he says, I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid. I am the deliverer. I'm God. This is the second person of the Trinity, as we see in Revelation. It's incredible, isn't it? Go to the last book of the Bible. That's easy to turn to. Chapter 22, verse 13, almost right at the very end. Unless, of course, you have maps. <laughs> Which are not as far. 22, 13. I am. That's Yahweh right there. That's Jehovah. The self-existent one. I am the Alpha. And the Omega, the first letter, the last letter. I'm A, I'm Z. Alpha, Omega, Greek. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. We see that in the Old Testament. We see it here in the New Testament. That's deity, isn't it? The power of Christ can support anyone because He's eternal. It's an attribute of Him. This person of the Trinity was crucified. He's dead. Does God die? No. 
But in the person of Christ, in the flesh, as he became like us, he was still God, but also the man had to die and come back to life again. He was killed. He was dead. And he became master of that. And these people in Smyrna really need to hear this, folks. There could come a time in your life when you need to hear this. I'm the first and the last. I died for you. I died for your sins. We might need to hear that today. We do, don't we? It's the Gospel. There are times in our life when we need to hear this. When you're not thinking right. Or you're going through something that's overwhelming. Or as a whole. One day, some crazy leader could say, no more Christianity. And anybody who does not Worship me or worship our nation, then he will be killed. You must deny Jesus Christ. It happened all throughout church history. Just look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, one chapter after another, after another, after another, one page after another. This was a suffering church there. They were suffering Christians and you know what? There's a sense here. You can take it in a spiritual sense. Smur, mur. To get this resin, you had to have an incision into the tree. And then it goes into the bark of the tree and the sap had to be allowed to bleed out of it. That happened in Smyrna. 500-something B.C., 200-something B.C., and then it came back to life. It was fragrant. It was also a bitter resin, and it had to be produced through the wounding of the tree. Christ was put on the tree. He was wounded, and there was the myrrh that was involved there, the suffering, the sadness of it all. But here is our priest. First and the last. Smyrna, you can take confidence. Grace Community Church, don't fear. This is what Christianity is about. God is doing a thing in us. And He's breaking us down. He's constantly wounding us so that we can become more like Christ. He's taking the pride out of us. And everything that's there, that is the old me, which already died, but I'm still in the body, and there has to be things that are done so I can glorify God better. One day I'll be able to do it in the fullest. But until then, I'm here in this body. Lord, take this body and use it however you want. So we go to the third part. It's the commendation of the church. He commends them. Chapter 2, verse 9. Does it make so far? Make sense? The angel of Smyrna, first and the last, has come to life. Here's the commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Yeah, that little arrow down there. Yeah, there we go. Thanks. I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Tribulation. I know your tribulation. What kind of tribulation were they going through? They were Christians. A lot of different kinds of tribulation. Some of that can be very, very personal things that happen to your life, and some of it can be the tribulation that comes on the church. It's both here. The word there for tribulation is, in the Greek, it's philipsis. It's like a crushing. It's a violent word. Uh, It is to be pressed, to crush, to press. It... The Garden of Gethsemane. Christ went there to pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He bled. He sweat drops of blood out of His body. It was was so intense. The Mount of Olives, Gethsemane, is the place of crushing the olives. They would be pressed. They would be crushed. A philipsis happened to them to get the olive oil out of it. Same thing happens with grapes. People would stomp on them. They, they crush them. They crush them. They press on them to get the juice out of the grapes. This is what happened to Christ, wasn't it? He was crushed for our iniquities. The pressure came upon Him That's why he said, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. What a pressing that happened there. Although he knew that that had to happen. But there is his humanness that was involved. You see, it says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, if you want to be like Christ, well, if you're going to be a Christian, what does it mean? Well, we just said it. You're going to be pressed. You're going to be crushed. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, I'll tell you what, good group of people here today. I hope we don't lose anybody because of this message today. This is tough, isn't it? Isn't this tough? You've heard about persecution. You can't, you can't do a chapter or, or a book in the Bible that's not going to have something to deal with persecution. You look all throughout the New Testament. It is constantly there. I would rather not talk about it. I would rather not think about it. I would like to take my mind and think about all positive things. Think positive. And you know what? Most of the time, I pretty well do that. Carolyn's probably thinking, yeah, right. (laughs) I try to do that. Well, I do. It's, It's good to think that way because we have good news. But yet at the same time, the people that have the good news look at Jesus Christ and they see quite the suffering to the point of death. You say, well, that was Him. That's not us. Well, He gave the message to the apostles to take out their mere men. 
They take it to the world. What happened to them? Because they took the message of the, the great resurrection of Christ, which should be the greatest news anybody ever heard. Oh, they're persecuted severely throughout the rest of their lives to the point of death. It's happening to John as he writes, he needs this good news. We could make it up and just say, everything is going to be perfect in your life from here on. And all you have to do is believe, believe, say things that are going to be positive and you will get your mansion. And you'll be a millionaire. Just think it. Think it and say it. That's what they do. And you know what? That is further from the truth. All you have to do is look through Scripture. Look at our Lord. Look at the Old Testament. Look through the New Testament. All the way to, way to Revelation. But don't forget, read Revelation chapter 19, 20, 21, 22. Because it tells what this is all about. This is a momentary light affliction. It does. It says it. Paul says that. Momentary light affliction while we're here on earth. An infant has a developing sense, right? An infant becomes a toddler. It doesn't take very long, you know, and then, you know, they, they toddle and then, and then they grow, they're going to school. You know, they just keep developing, right? We as Christians keep developing. We go through things. We go through a lot of mostly good things. By the way, in this nation, we have had so much comfort. It's unbelievable. We don't know what it's like. Whenever it says thalipsis, that'll never happen to us. By the way, take that gospel that I was just talking about that's nothing but all good. It sounds positive. And they take it to Africa. And those people just barely have even food if they have that, barely have water, barely have any clothes, and they tell them this message. There's some Africans that come over here to America because they want that kind of gospel because they're promised that they will get all of these things. And so what is the gospel about? It's having nice things and God will bless you. God blesses. He's blessed us more abundantly than anybody I think ever in the history of mankind if you take it materialistically. Every one of us here had a nice comfortable house today. Nice bunch of clothes. Food, water, we can get it easily. We've had that all of our lives. My, how how much comfort we've had. Has any other uh, time period before the 1900s have it like that? So easy, to be honest with you, we're like kids with candy. It's rotting us out. Yeah. I like comforts. I really do. I really enjoy them. And there's nothing wrong with having them. But sometimes we can turn our attention to things. That's not what life is about. That's not eternal life at all. That's not what blessing really is, even though we are blessed by so much, and I I don't take that away at all. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. You know what? The Lord knows every experience that was brought to pass in those people's lives. He could have kept it from happening. And I'm sure they even prayed, Lord, keep us from this. Anybody would. But at the same time, we also say, nevertheless, your will be done. Not mine, 
Whatever you got planned, God, that's what I want. Okay? <laughs> Look at this. I know your tribulation and your poverty. I want you to take note of that word poverty. There are different words for being poor. Poverty. It's not something that, that we cherish. We don't like for people to be poor. We don't want to be poor. You probably consider yourself to be poor. But you're not. Here's the deal. They couldn't say, Caesar is Lord. What happens? They lose their jobs. They lose their homes. They lose everything. The word that is used here is very, very, very poor. It means you have nothing. Do you get that? That. It did, and the Lord knew about it. Tribulation. I know it. And it can cause people to become very poor. Remember, this is a city that is just loaded with money. Quite the industrial place it was. He doesn't have anything at all. Most of the people in Smyrna Church, they were poverty stricken. The Lord says He knows that. You know what? Some people are rich, but they are really poor. Here He tells the church, I know your poverty. You're in poverty. You're poor, but you really are rich. Some of them can be saying, what? Very, very poor. Poverty stricken. Look in Revelation 3.17. This is not a commendation here. Because you say, I am rich... And have become wealthy. They say that. We're rich. We're wealthy. Look at us. And have need of nothing. Everything they needed. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Whoa. That is to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. We know about them. You say you're rich, but you are poor. Smyrna says that they are poor, but they're really rich. Wow, quite the difference there, isn't there? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This gets us into what the real Word of God says rather than what the world is telling us. We got to have all the greatest, latest technology and everything that's out. And if we don't have it, we're not cool. We got to have what the world has. We got to see what the world sees, experience what the world sees. 2 Corinthians 8 9, and then Christ says this I am not speaking this as a command, 
but as proving through the earnestness and others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He had everything, didn't He? Before He came to earth, He had it all. But as He came as a man, He really had almost nothing. Yet for your sake, He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. He was rich. He became poor so that we would become rich. And He tells the church here, you think you're poor, you're really rich because you inherit the kingdom of God. You've been adopted into the family. I know there's momentary light affliction going on. Some of them were dying. Some of them were starving to death. Some of them were being put in prison or were going to be put in prison and rot. Some would be released. Lots of things going on there in Smyrna. Are you getting the idea? Are you starting to get a feel of your brothers and sisters who you will meet in the kingdom? These people really, you know, when you think about it, are incredible. They are poor, but they're like the people who are they're not many mighty, not many noble. They are the poor, but they have been put in as the children of the king. This world here doesn't last long, does it? Quite the uh, encouragement that he's given them. You are rich, he says. You rich because you responded to the ministry of the Word of God. That's why you're rich. Do you know every time you pick up this Bible, you're at home, when you're listening to preaching on the radio or on the internet, CDs, videos, surrounding yourself with that. You guys do that, don't you? Thinking, meditating on Him. When you do that, you see yourself as rich. And you see yourself in quite the position of who you really are. The Word of God ministers to you. Are you being ministered to today? Is this giving you encouragement? Not because of what I say. I hope it is. It helps. But because right here, everything that we've seen, I hope nothing there has been wrong. I hope everything that I've said is right. It's correct because it's this. It's coming out of here. That's what matters, isn't it? This is what matters. Not what the world out there is telling you. Not what the church out there is even telling you today. I'm embarrassed by most of the church today. I'm totally embarrassed. The church has to be judged. The judgment starts with the household of God. It's happening. The wrath of God is here. He's letting the people do whatever they want to do. They've been doing it for quite some time. And it becomes amplified more and more than ever before. Everything is opposite of what you know is truth. It is upside down. And people are encouraging people to be more and more upside down. It's hard to believe. Why has that happened? Well, in Romans 1 it says God turns them over to their lusts. To a depraved 
mind. That's why many in this world, and I'll, I'll say it, the Democrats, that's why they say, I'm talking about the ones who are on the far left, say things that are exact opposite. I can't believe they said this, and this, and this, and this. And every day it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's because they have a depraved mind that's being exposed to its fullest for all to see. Unfortunately, a lot don't see that. And they join right in with that. Everybody who doesn't know Christ is depraved. But God just lets them go and expose it even more. Does that help explain what's going on? We should expect that. But remember, that's what the Gospel is about. These people need good news. It says, love your enemies. They hate us, folks. And the first thing that they will want to do to the church, if they get their desire, and I'm not saying that's going to happen, or even happen soon, but it could very well happen soon, we know in less than three weeks, almost two weeks now, there will be a vote. You need to cast your vote for the side who stands for righteousness, not for the side who stands for death. See, pro-choice means you have a choice to choose what? Life or, what's the choice? Death to human beings. That's been established. And they want science? Science is all there. They don't want science there then, do they? Any side that would do that, and that is the measurement. I don't need to hear all the other stuff. I already know that that is what the Democrats believe in. I cannot believe that. You may not like Trump, but he does stand for righteousness. He stands for life. And all the things that, like, Christianity has free worship today. Kind of. Most places. At least we have it. We're free. That is a right. I'm not trying to get real political. I'm just saying that that's what the world has always done throughout the ages. In Israel and all the other nations. They hate Christ. So, that's why they're being persecuted. They don't fit in Smyrna anymore. By the way, we go back to Revelation now. I hope I didn't tend to get way off of that. I was just putting into place what is applying to us. The synagogue of Satan. What's going on there? I know your tribulation and your poverty. You are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. But they're a synagogue of Satan. Wow, John. Whoa, whoa, you're getting a little bit too heavy here. You're, they're from Satan. The Jews are from Satan. Or the synagogue of Satan. Whoa. I'm not saying condemn Jews. Not at all. We pray for them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There were Jews in Smyrna who did not believe in the Messiah. They were not Christians. They hated Christ and they hated anybody that talked about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you walked around in Smyrna like that, they would make a lot of fun of you. Might do a lot of worse things to you. And this is coming from Jews. This is the one that had the same Bible that the early Christians had until the New Testament was completed and they were, they were getting those letters Already, they, they, this church right here you know, got a letter 
from John that, that's in our book here today, that they know that the apostles were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. And they know that they came from them, but yet, what happened? Well, they believed in the Messiah. That's promised in the Old Testament. They very naturally opposed Christ and His church. Right there in Smyrna, there was a difficulty between the Jews and the Christians who were, many of them were Jews who were converted. Talking about civil war. Civil war against Christians in Smyrna. A synagogue is synagogue. means to assemble together or it's a gathering together. A synagogue. A place of worship, right? The assembly... Here is assembly of the Lord. We are called ecclesia. We're kind of like a synagogue, a synagogue, but that is pertaining to Jews, and we're called uh, the church. Ek means out of ecclesia, clay, called, called out. The church are called out ones from the world to gather together. We have been called by the Lord. We are chosen. Chosen by God to enter into that. He used the Gospel to do it. He used somebody to preach it to you and teach you what the Gospel was. And because of His grace and His grace alone, you answered, yes, I want to follow Christ. He had already chosen you before the foundation of the world, but in a moment and in time you were called and justified to be glorified, as Romans 8 talks about. So we are an assembly of God. We are a gathered together people. It was the assembly of the Lord that had the assembly of Satan a gathering of people. We are the gathered out ones, right? Versus the, the, the gathered together people that were from the synagogue of Satan. An assembly of Satan. A gathered out people. They were already out there. Satan gathers them and puts them up against the church. You know what? I think today, in our world today, we have a satanic influence on this nation and the world for all the looting, the rioting, the murders, the burning up of police precincts, the burning up of small businesses all over these major cities that still goes on. What causes people to say these terrible words to policemen or to anybody that opposes them? Or for if you're just a white man and they start screaming and yelling at you because you're just white and privileged. That, folks, is not normal. That is satanic. Satanically influenced is what a particular party in this country today is. They are satanically influenced. The rest of the world, it's going on in England. All over Europe. Everywhere you see there is political unrest. What causes that? Satan and his henchmen. And he only has a third of them, by the way. And he is not God. 
He's a created being who God can put out like that. He has total control over Satan. But for the moment, he's using Satan and the demons to do what they do. But he's going to protect his own ecclesia. His church shall not be prevailed against. We win, folks. That's the idea. Isn't it great news? So, but he tells them here, he says they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue Satan. They understand it. It might even be their, their uncle, cousins, might even be a brother or sister who is a Jew and not a Christian now who is persecuting them. Is that possible? Yes, absolutely. People who would be the most close to now are at odds. Mm. The synagogue of Satan. He is using this to an advantage. And what does Jesus say in verse 10? Number 4. This is an exhortation. What are the three words? Do not fear. What has He already said about Himself? I am the first. I am the last. I am the eternal one. I know what's going on. Believe me. And this is part of the plan. You are in the church. Do not fear. And you know what? He's going to tell them what's going to happen to them. What does he say? Do not fear. I'm going to protect you and nothing bad is going to happen to you. No physical harm from you at all. He tells that, right? Well, if I was a positive thinker, that's what I would say. Well, you know what that means? Then I would deny the Word of the Lord. I have to be truthful with you. Please come back next week. (laughs) What does it say? I didn't write this. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Why? So that you'll be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. That's a strange one. He says, don't fear. What's going on now? And by the way, I will tell you that Satan is is going to have you arrested and thrown into prison. Some of you are going to be put in prison. Oh, do not fear. And this is why he tells them, do not fear. You're going to be put into prison. It's going to happen. So that you'll be tested. You're going to be strong when this happens. I'll give you the strength. <coughs> wow, really? Really, God, are you you're telling me I'm going to have tribulation? Even worse? Um, this, we understand, the devil is diabolos. Uh, the word for Satan, the synagogue of Satan, in the previous verse was satanus. Satanus, Satan. Devil, diabolos. You've heard of some westerns and movies called that before, haven't you? It's the devil. Ultimately, he's in control. We battle not against flesh and blood. We battle against spiritual enemies in high places. Ephesians 6 talks about that. You're going to be tested. You'll have tribulation for ten days. This is a threat that is not from the Lord Himself, although He knows what's going on. But the threat is, here's what's going to happen to some of you. 
some people interpret this as ten persecutions from Nero in 64 AD to the last uh, Diocletian. There were ten emperors and ten persecutions through that time. We could take it through that way and say, okay, that's, and that's fine. I don't know. It could be that it is a literal ten days. A literal ten days. It could be just a short amount of time. Okay, you're going to be thrown in prison, but it's only going to be for a little while. A few days. Which can mean a few weeks, a few months. But it's almost like, okay, and then you'll be released. Could be the literal ten days. Uh, you know, historically, we can't really prove that, but it very well could have happened. Maybe, and it's a promise here. We don't have any facts on this, but what it's saying really is you're going to be arrested, put in prison, but it's not going to be for a long time to this church here in, in Smyrna. So that's, that's the idea. And so he says, be faithful, but you know what? Some of them might die there, or some of them won't die. Some of them might die later. By the way, they all will die later. So what does he say? How do I respond to this, God? Don't fear. Mere man cannot kill your soul, right? He says, be faithful until death. Which, you know, will happen. Everybody's going to die. This is a, a promise now here. You know, is what, he, what he's getting to. Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear. Is anybody listening? If you haven't been listening, you better listen now because God's speaking. <laughs> he who has an ear. <laughs> I couldn't resist it. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not only Smyrna, but all of them, even to us today. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We're closing this out here. He says, I'll give you a crown of life. The word there, crown, is not the diadem of the kings, you know, made of all gold with jewels in it and everything. It's a stephanos, which you can see that's a laurel wreath. That's what the Olympic runners would get whenever they won their race. Wow, you know. I worked all year and I win the race and that's what I get. Well, they were quite proud of that. You know, they get that's their trophy. So he uses that word Stephanos. The name Stephen. You ever heard of him? He sure got his crown of life, didn't he? Stephanos. I'll give you the crown of life. What is that? Well, eternal life is not a reward in itself. I guess in a sense it is, but really there are different crowns that we are given. It's consisting of the full experience of eternal life. The fullest people like Smyrna who were so poor are going to get the crown of life. There are different degrees, even though everybody's saved and every, everybody gets to enjoy life. But there's a fullness that some will have because they did what they did here. There's the uh, judgment seat of Christ. It's called the Bema. And it's judging only Christians. You say, I thought our sins were judged. They are. We're not even talking about that. You already have eternal life. We're talking about the works that you did as a Christian. 
you want to serve Christ, you want those crowns. And not for a matter of pride, because where do they go when we're there? We throw them right back at the feet of Christ. But He wants us to have crowns. Because it's the work that He put in us. All we do is just work it out. Work out your salvation. Don't work for it. You work it out. It's the crown of life. And because of their great persecution and their suffering to the point of death, they would get this reward. The gift. We have the gift of sovereign grace already, don't we? full experience of life, being faithful all the way to the end. You as a believer are overcomers. It says right at the end there, here's where we're at, he who overcomes. This is what the Holy Spirit's telling each one of you right here. If you overcome, you'll not be hurt by the second death. If you do enough work, then you will overcome, right? And you do it, just just keep hanging in there. False. The overcomer is found in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And we've seen this before. I think we talked about this last week. But let's go to 1 John 5, 4 and 5. What is the overcomer? For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Have you been overcoming? How did you overcome? You were born of God. You were born again. And this is the victory. What is the victory? That has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. That's granted to us by grace. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Who is it? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Have you overcome the world? Yes. Because we believe Jesus is the Son of God. He put that in us by His grace and mercy and love that we recognize that He is the Son of God. Now, I close with this. There is a guy by the name of Polycarp, and I have been in error the last couple of weeks, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I think I said Polycarp was the pastor of Ephesus. He might have spoken there, but he was really the pastor of Smyrna. Okay, so sorry about that. I don't know. It just went off my mind. I got to think, wait a minute, why was I saying that? I know better than that. Maybe I forgot. Uh, but he's from Smyrna. Now, I want you to grab a hold of this, give you a little history lesson. He w- was living during the time that this letter was written and put into the hands of the messenger at Smyrna. He might have been in that church at that time when it was read. Polycarp went under great persecution to the point of death. Now, no second death. He died, but there's no second death. If you're born again, you're you're born twice. You die once. That's your body. Your spiritual man continues to go and goes to be with the Lord. Some of them faced gruesome deaths but never the second death. Let me tell you about Polycarp and we'll end. He was 86 years old. And he got a knock at the door there in Smyrna. Polycarp, we had to come here. He's hauled before the courts of Smyrna. 
they said, look, you're 86 years old, you're an old man. All you have to do is just say, Caesar is Lord. We'll let you go. Just, just say those words. It does, you don't have to mean it. Just say, Caesar is Lord, and you will not be persecuted. He flatly refused. He never wavered. He said these words, Four score and six years, 86 years, I have served the Lord Jesus. He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? He was burned alive. Our prayer as we finish here and then go into our Lord's Supper, I'm going to use this as the prayer, okay? This is some of the words that he said as he was burning. This is what was reported afterwards. Evidently somebody wrote it down. Just before his martyr. O Lord God Almighty, Father of Thy beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of Thee, God of angels and powers and all creation and of the whole family of the righteous who live before You, I bless You that Thou granted unto time this day and hour that I may share among the number of the martyrs in the cup of Thy Christ for the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, and the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I, Lord, be received today among them before Thee as a rich and acceptable sacrifice as Thou, the God without falsehood and truth, has prepared beforehand and shown forth and fulfilled what a magnificent testimony here that has been given of faithfulness unto death. As we go into our communion time, remember our Lord who gave Himself up. He died 